0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mescouta, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Now, if we want to take a minute and think backwards, we'll remember that last week I was able to kind of preach us through this verbal sparring that Jesus had with the Jews in which he, in no uncertain terms, declared himself to be God. The Jews had challenged him, they were frustrated with him, they were angry and even seeking to kill him because he had made himself equal with God by suggesting that he was allowed to work on the Passover. And so, doubling down on this claim that he was equal with God, Jesus says, Not only am I equal with God as the God of the Passover, but I am the God uh, who is equal with God in glory and honor, that I am the one who is equal with God in his will, that I am equal with God uh, in majesty, that I am equal with God in ability, right? He says even that he is the God who, by the power of his word, will raise the dead, that it is he who will judge all men, that He will resurrect men either into the resurrection of life or into the resurrection of judgment. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, last week claimed to be God, and then it says it's from this place that he departs. And last week, I think that if we hang out there for some time, uh, that Jesus rightly is elevating himself to his proper position, right? The very place that uh, John has, in the beginning of the gospel, said that Jesus began, that he was in the beginning with God, that he was himself God, and he is declaring this. And this is a big day in Jesus' earthly ministry, and in many cases what he's doing is he's progressing and moving forward the timeline that these people are going to crucify him for these claims. So this is a big moment, but as we lift our eyes up and we see Jesus as the eternal God of of the universe and we see him as the god who is going to bring judgment upon all men as the god who says by the power of his word we are saved suddenly he feels like god right and as mere men it can be that when we see him in his rightful place that we become aware of this great gap between us and it starts to kind of set in is this big jesus approachable And the result is often that we will see in the church that there are many who will put their faith in Jesus unto salvation, that he's clearly the Jesus who is the one who is able to give me a future in the afterlife, but certainly this God is not interested in my today, that I can count on Jesus to bring me into heaven, into eternity with him, but where can I look to count on for today's meal? And so I think it's really precious how John sequences his events here, that he then leads us into this account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. My hope this morning is that after seeing Jesus in an, an upward way, that we would then see the way that he lowers himself and humbles himself in order to be the God and the Lord of our daily meal. I want to go verse by verse through this. It says that John chapter 6 verse 1, that after this Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now as a preacher, we have a, as all, all preachers have this responsibility to kind of make some decisions when you're preaching, right? So I sat down and went through the whole book of John, had to kind of decide, how do we break this up? Where do I stop? Like what, what is a preachable amount of text, right? That if I'm not I'm going to stand up here all day, right? Like where do I stop? I don't want to stop in such a way that I disrupt the flow of what the author is trying to communicate to us. I don't want to stop in such a way that it takes verses out of context. So I want to kind of try to make decisions that are mindful before the Lord to preach this in the way that the author intends for it to be received. And then also, when you're preaching the Gospels, there's an additional burden in that there are four of these things. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they, in many cases, overlap with one another, and they tell the same story from different vantage points and so there's a lot of stuff that we can learn about Jesus feeding the 5,000 from the other gospel writers in fact this is the only miracle that occurs in all four of the gospel accounts and so you have to make a decision right am I going to come up here am I going to preach to you four gospels or am I going to preach to you what John said because we're in the gospel of John Well, the reason why I bring it up is because they were all there, right? Like these are eyewitness accounts that are documented in the four Gospels. And so it's as interesting what they do include in here as what they don't. So when there are things that the author doesn't include in here that they were there to see, it communicates to us something. It communicates to us what as a priority stood out to them. And so John is showing us from his perspective what are the most important details of this. And so this is what I'm going to do. This is the decision I made is I'm going to, on the front end of the message, kind of tell you the whole story, give you the details, compiling the four accounts, and then we're going to try to stay within the vein of what really made an impression on John as we look at what he did share and what he left out, okay? So here's this. All four of the accounts take into account that it's basically the story of there being a crowd and there not being food, and Jesus multiplying food, distributing that food, until everybody had their need met, and then taking up the leftovers, there being 12 baskets left. That's the meat of the story, and all four of the Gospels will tell you that. All of them will take account of the theme of Jesus taking the bread, and breaking the bread, and blessing the bread, and then giving the bread to then be distributed, and then for the disciples to eat it. This is the theme, and we're going to get to that theme. But Mark gives us some details that John does not. He says that Jesus ends up in this desolate place because he's attempting to escape the crowds. It says that the crowds were thronging about them and that the disciples didn't even get a minute to eat, that they, had, that they couldn't even like squeeze away for a minute in order to eat. And so Jesus is leading them away to a desolate place in order to get away from the crowds when he gets to the mountaintop that he's on in our passage this morning. It says that when Jesus looks out at that crowd in Mark, that he takes compassion on them and that he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. That's a detail that's unique to Mark. It says that, Jesus taught them many things in this setting, but John leaves that out. Mark documents sarcasm from the disciples that John leaves out. Mark was kind of famous for that. He kind of would often talk about the disciples in the most honest way, showing their interactions back to Jesus. And he kind of presents the response to Jesus as, a what are we going to do, go spend 200 bucks and feed all these people kind of thing? John leaves that out. And Mark mentions also that there are women and children in addition to the 5,000 men that are mentioned in this account. So he really points out just how many people we're talking about here. Luke says that when the crowd finds Jesus, that he welcomed them. That's unique to Luke. That Jesus took on the, the role of a host in this setting and that he welcomed them. That stood out to him. And, that he, and he mentioned what Jesus was teaching about when he taught them. He says that he taught them many things about the kingdom of God. But these are the unique things of John, and if this is like interesting to you and you're like trying to scribble notes, I'll send it out to you later. I I did the work already. I'll send you the comparison between the Gospels. But John says that they were following him because of the signs. He names that it's at the Sea of Tiberias, not just the Sea of Galilee, so he tells us exactly where it was. He mentions that it was up on a mountain, not just a desolate place, but says where that desolate place was. It says that it's Jesus in John, it says it's Jesus who raises the problem of the food, whereas the other accounts talk about the disciples squabbling about it. In John, he names the disciples in order to kind of give function to what the relationship was with each of them, whereas the others just regard them generally. And it's in John that we read that the loaves came from a little boy, and it's in John that we learn that they were barley loaves, not just regular loaves. And it's also in John that we learn that their response is to call him the prophet that is to come. And it's John who connects this miracle to the walking on the water. So you can see that although the details, the meat of it is the same, that each of the gospel writers had a different impression of the events and communicated them with different emphases, right? And so now I want to kind of pay attention to why it is that John points out what he points out and why maybe he leaves out what he leaves out. And I'm hoping that in so doing that we will see what John saw, which is a really tender Jesus who is central to the whole thing. After this, verse 1, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Verse 2, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Verse 4, The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus says to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. As we get ready to focus in on this early part of the story, I want you to pray with me that we'll see what John saw. Father God, you have lifted our eyes to see you as the king of it all, the Lord of it all, the God of the universe. And here you are about to take care of a single meal for a single group of people on a single day in history. I just pray that that would strike us this morning with as much awe as the upward casting of our eyes, Lord, that you would show us a more full and complete picture of who you are in order that you would invite us into your rest and your comfort and your joy. I pray that you invite us into deeper dependence on you. I pray that you would help me to preach this morning by the power of your Spirit, Lord, that the Spirit who loves nothing more than to glorify the name of your Son, Lord, that you would By his power, Lord, show us, lift our hearts, stir our hearts, Lord, to be your children. Testify to us that you are Abba, Father, this morning. Lord, do it because you can. I ask that in your name. Amen. Guys, the first thing that I want you guys to see this morning is that Jesus sees you before you see him and that he takes compassion on you. You know, in, when I mentioned that in Mark, that he, it says that, that uh, Jesus took compassion on the crowd and that he regarded them as a uh, sheep without a shepherd. Suddenly, this takes on a different tenor, doesn't it? So, I want you guys to think about a time. I'll tell you one in my life. and then I'd like, Maybe you need to see it, right? I, when my wife was pregnant with our second child, Boaz, uh, she was very sick. It was a high-risk pregnancy. She was having kidney issues. Um, She had a total blockage on one kidney and needed to have a nephrostomy tube kind of out her side in order to drain urine while she was pregnant because she was unable to pass urine naturally while she was pregnant. And it was a problem. And in the procedure, when they implanted the nephrostomy tube, they introduced on the surgical table a staph infection into the kidney, and she went septic. The sepsis traveled to the placenta and threatened the life of my second child. And I remember being in the room as a young dad with two different specialists in the room with my wife arguing with one another in front of us over what the best course of action was. Right, One of them saying, we we need to treat the infection and leave the baby in there as long as possible because at this point it's too early in everyday matters of incubation. And the other one saying, doesn't matter how long the child incubates for if it's, you know, swimming around in a staph infection, we need to take the baby out. And the doctors all but looking at Sarah and I to make the call, but we didn't go to medical school, school, right? And we just want the baby to live. And so in this moment, uh, Sarah and I just calling upon the name of our God before the doctors and with one another, clinging, holding hands, and just not knowing what to do and saying, let's, let, let's induce, let's take him out, right? And so we think that the Lord has given us a miracle. The baby is born, the baby cries out, and they hand the baby over to Sarah and to get some, some contact time, and the baby just starts turning blue, blue beyond blue, not breathing. And quickly they rush, and they take him away from us, and they rush the baby off to the NICU where he'll spend about two weeks, and he's fine now. And I remember in that moment, looking at this whole situation, and really the whole pregnancy, it was a pregnancy of anger with God, and that it felt like I was running toward God, and that God was running away from me, that I was not getting any clarity from him, that he had foreseen where I was going, what was happening, that he had cared about it, or that he was going to meet my need in this season. And here in this glimpse of hope where it was like, okay, we, 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 we called on you, God, and we said, let's induce, and, and here's the baby, and the baby's okay, and then they take the baby away. Scariest moment of my life. I'll say it like, we didn't know what was going on. They weren't communicating. They just grabbed him and left the room, right? And I'm just shaking a fist at God. You know, Lord, I'm pursuing you, and it feels like you're walking away from me. And I don't want to project too much of me onto this story. But the truth is, is that when you look at this story and you compare it to the other gospel accounts, what you see is there's a crowd who wants to get to Jesus. They had seen him healing other people. It says that's the reason why they'd seen the signs of the healing and that he can heal. And so they were following him. They didn't want him to go away. And they can see him leaving. And so they're just following him. He's literally trying to get to a desolate place where he can be alone. And you got to wonder, like, what were they thinking, you know? It says that when Jesus looked at them, he saw compassion on them as a sheep without a shepherd. And suddenly certain details in this story completely change. And so, church, before I point them out to you, I want you to find that thing in your life today, to find that thing in your life that kind of is unresolved where you just felt like you need to not think about that because this was a time when I was calling on the name of the Lord and when he walked away from me, When he didn't hear me, or when I pursued him, but he didn't see me back. And I need you to see Jesus in this passage, okay? It says that Jesus, departing to this desolate place, who had taken compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd, goes up to this spot, and suddenly it takes on a different thing. Jesus initiates then at the next point to Philip where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, them following Jesus out into the desert, either desperate because they were sick and willing to forgo a meal in order to do that, or just not thinking about what they were doing. When they leave Tiberias and go out to a desolate place to follow Jesus, it, it's implied here that they're about to spend a night in the desert. They're about to spend a day in the desert where they're not going to be able to get food. Now, they're either not thinking about this and they're neglecting themselves because they've, they've decided like, to just put all that out of mind because they're just seeking Jesus here. Or they're seriously worried about it, but they're just chasing Jesus anyway. But by seeing Jesus as the initiator here, and this is what I love about when we were comparing the, the Gospels here what I love about John pointing out that it was Jesus who initiates the question, not the disciples, who are like, "What are we going to eat? What are they going to eat?" It shows us that it is Jesus who is thinking ahead and pre-planning to meet the needs of the crowd that is following him. That's the first thing. The second thing is that his awareness of them means that it is him who is orchestrating the the whole setting, right? So we talked last week about a Jesus who had set up the whole thing by telling the paralytic to pick up his bed and walk on the Sabbath, that he would violate it in order to set up the interaction, in order that he could then show his glory and majesty. It's the same thing here. Jesus is saying to, is, is showing through his actions that what He's setting up here is a situation where the people will be led out into the wilderness, and we should see some similarities here. He's going to lead the people out into the wilderness in order that he can set up a feeding for them. A sheep without a shepherd, he is going to lead to a place where it says, a uh, in verse in verse ten, Jesus said, "Have the people sit down." Now there was much grass in that place, and so the men sat down. Why did John include the grass? when there were all of these other things that he left out. Why did John include the grass? Now, there was much grass in that place. Well, these were a sheep without a shepherd. And what shepherds do is they lead the sheep to green pastures. And Jesus, foreknowing what he was going to do, has them wandering, following him, as he picks the perfect spot at the top of a mountain where he is going to be able to see the crowds teach them, speak to them, distribute bread to them, and give them a cozy spot to sit and have a picnic in the park. What? And Jesus initiates the problem before anybody asks him, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? And he says this to test Philip because he knew what he was going to do, and Philip answers him, we can't. And one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother says to him, "There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many?" And Jesus said, "Have the people sit down." And there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. So John also likes to include this. This it's common with Andrew that Andrew seems to be the one who socializes with the people in the outer circle, right? Like that, like the 12, some of them huddled in close to Jesus, and some of them were shaking hands with the people who would come to meet him, right? It's just fitting that John would include that it's Andrew who would know of the little boy, who would have been talking to him and be aware that he had a lunch there. But I also feel like Andrew must have felt really dumb, even bringing it to Jesus' attention, that this boy brought a sack lunch, Jesus says, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Philip says, can't do it. Andrew says, there's a boy with a sack lunch. Jesus says, good enough, have the people sit down. See, Jesus not only sees you before you see him and takes compassion upon you. Jesus not only looks upon sheep who need a shepherd and takes up that call to become our shepherd, but he also knows our need before we ask. The people didn't ask him for food. And he's willing to deny himself in order to meet that need. In fact, he pre-plans to do it. What we see in the other gospel accounts is that Jesus was himself hungry. And that the disciples were hungry. And the whole reason that they were departing the crowds in the first place was to find a spot to have a meal. But the crowds followed. Jesus took compassion upon them, knew their hunger, and decided that he wouldn't just feed himself and his disciples, but that he would feed them as well. So going back to kind of that first question that I asked you, really think about a time that you felt like you were pursuing Jesus and that he was walking away from you. What I want you to call to mind here is that what he's doing in this this story and what he's always doing in ours is wherever it is that he's going, that he would have us following him and calling on him. Wherever he stops and makes eye contact with you and says to you, I see you. And before you've even asked the thing, I've known what you need, and I have creatively pre-planned to meet that need, so much so that I'm willing to deny myself in order to meet it. He's showing you something about himself that is meant to draw you into deeper dependence and celebration on him. The thing is, is he could have taught whatever it is that he was teaching on the kingdom of God in Tiberias. He didn't have to lead anybody out into the wilderness to do it. But by leading the people out into the wilderness. And then multiplying bread in a miraculous way, it would have certainly shown them something that he had just claimed about himself, wouldn't it? For those of us who are familiar with the Exodus story, we should call to mind a story of God's people being led by God as they followed the pillar of cloud and fire through the wilderness to desolate places where there was no bread to eat, and then by a miracle, he would make the manna fall from heaven in order to feed the people Jesus is reenacting an Old Testament story here in order to show who he is to the people. And similarly, guys, we need to see the ways that in our lives, when we call on him and we want him to be something that we can predict and control, and we want to tell him what we need and have him give us what we asked for, it's it's like how Tim Keller says it, that Jesus always gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew. He has seen our need and creatively thought ahead about how it is that he is going to meet it. And that's exactly what he does. He says, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place and the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them, or all of them, to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted." Now, this is where we want to pay attention to what John is leaving out again. So we, we looked at what he uniquely put in. He's talking about the grass, right? And he talks about how Jesus initiated it, not the disciples. This was important for him to point out. But now what does he leave out? It says that Jesus distributed them to those who were seated. But the other gospel accounts say that it was the disciples who distributed the bread to those who were seated. That Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish and he gave them to the disciples to distribute. John says that it's Jesus who took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who received He conspicuously leaves himself and the other disciples out of the distribution altogether. Why would he do that? Why would John fail to mention that he was inner circle, the one who was called to distribute the bread? There's a few things that I would say there. But the first thing that I want to point out to you guys is that, first of all, and I, just, I, I know it's awkward, but I just want to point out, this is for Brett, and this is for Pastor Mike, and this is for Pastor Dude, and this is for me, and this is for anybody who ever sets out to carry out obediently what the Lord calls them to do. Anybody who sets themselves upon a call of Christ or a cause of Christ, I want you to hear this, okay? We are mere distributors of the bread. We are not multipliers of bread. We don't multiply bread, we merely distribute it. Our role is to go to Jesus with empty hands, to take what he gives us, and to go and to give it to whoever he says to give it to. That is the role of anybody in Christian ministry. When you set yourself upon a cause of Christ, to love anybody in the name of Christ, what you are to do is to receive from Jesus and then to give it away. Receive from Jesus and to give it away. And this is just a really high point for me this morning. And it's a really high point for you guys this morning, that Jesus is never going to call his people to give what they have not first received from him, and he's never going to call his people to distribute what they have not first tasted. And we're going to round back on that, on that in a second, but I want you guys to hear this, that the Christian life is the process of receiving from Jesus and then giving it away. And the reason why you can give it away is because of your confidence in the person of Jesus to then give you again, to give to you again, that it is by the hand of Jesus that my cup is filled, and so I can pour out my cup for others. And so John just leaves himself out of the story altogether. He doesn't want to be seen as the bread guy. He wants Jesus to be seen as the bread guy. He took the loaves, and then he gave thanks, and he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, they ate their fill. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And this is kind of a secondary point to what I just said, that Jesus will always give us our fill. See, this, this, this word, our fill, is really important because it, it's, it's what it doesn't mean. It means that nobody hungered after the meal, but it also means that no one one packed a to-go bag. They ate their fill. And Jesus didn't fill their storehouses so that they wouldn't need him tomorrow. He met their need today in order that they would need him again tomorrow. And this is the nature of the way that we receive from Christ. I I had a, a really wise guy say to me early on when I was being developed for ministry that you guys, that the people that you minister to never need the stuff that you can dig out of the car cushions in the back seat, right? That like, that when you go somewhere and you have a great meal and you take home the leftovers and the kids spill some and it falls like in the car cushions, right? That like, you, they don't need you to look back and remember that great meal and be like, oh, I think I had some left over, and to dig around the backseat and offer it to them, and like as if it's going to be as good for them as it was for you. That instead, the Christian life of ministry is about actively receiving from the Lord and giving them what he is actively giving to you. And so you'll see this a lot in Christian ministry, and you'll, and you'll do it a lot in your lives. Even today, when I wanted to tell you guys a story about God's faithfulness in my life, my son Boaz is going to be 10 this September. I told you a decade-old story to talk about the faithfulness of God. But this is a pattern that we do often where he would have us look back and recall his past faithfulness, but never only that. That so we'd also be able to look at the way that he is actively loving us and loving our souls today in order that we can call people into actively experiencing him the way that we are. So Jesus fed them their fill and nothing more, nothing less but nothing more there were no to-go bags not for them he wants to be our daily fill now we also see that what Jesus never does for those who are following him and those who are pursuing him and those who are seeking him is he never neglects those who are neglecting themselves in that pursuit See, Jesus does call us, not in this passage, but several times he will in this gospel, to take up our crosses if we are to follow him, to deny ourselves if we are to follow him. And when we deny ourselves and we take up our crosses and follow him, and we neglect to meet our own needs as we trust in him, he never neglects to meet our needs. So these people who followed him out into the desert with no plan about how they were going to eat, they didn't need to factor that in because Jesus did For them, And that's an important thing for us to remember because there are going to be times that Jesus says, follow me into a place where you can't look out and forecast the way that following him is going to meet your daily bread need. And he wants us to see in this story, John wants us to see in this story that Jesus is all about showing us here that when we neglect ourselves in following him, he never neglects to meet our needs. And after everybody has eaten their fill, Jesus has done this miracle where from a little boy's lunch, he has replicated loaves and fish to distribute to 5,000 plus people. He sends the disciples out and he says to them in verse 12, when they would eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Pop quiz, how many disciples were there? Twelve. How many baskets of leftovers were there? Twelve. Twelve. Guys, this is like, this is it. Right? What what John is trying to communicate, actually, this detail is in all four of the Gospels. They all loved this part. That Jesus hadn't forgotten that they had gone to the place in the first place because the disciples were hungry. He said, I've got a basket for each of you. That I haven't used up my provision, I haven't used up my grace, I haven't used up my miracles in order that you might serve them. But just like I just said to you, I don't call you to distribute to other people what I do not also offer to you. I do not call you to go and tell people to take and eat that which I am not inviting you to take and eat. Twelve baskets left over in order that they might go then and sit down and enjoy a meal with Jesus. But how many of us are running ourselves ragged with dry stories of, uh, of a Jesus that we haven't tasted and seen with our own eyes? Telling old tales that we are far removed from where, where we don't really believe that anymore because we haven't sought his face. Holding on to these stories where we felt like we were pursuing him and he turned his back on us. We try to push that out of mind in order that we can just be good Christians and move forward. Christ gives us a place that we can go to lay that down, to seek his face and to see him in that lowly place in order that he can minister to us today. And in many cases, church, in many cases what the people need most is for you to identify with their hunger. And what Jesus would invite us into is for us to identify with the people's hunger. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't feed the disciples until after he fed the masses? And I would posit, and it doesn't say it, that the reason why John left himself out of the story as the distributor of the bread is he didn't identify himself on Jesus' side of the miracle. He identified with the crowd. He, too, was one of the hungry people. And with each loaf that he handed out and with each fish that he distributed, faith was built that his need, too, would be met. The reason why I point that out is because sometimes in the Christian life, things don't go in the order that we think they ought to go. Right? I just said to you that Jesus is never going to call you to distribute that which you have not tasted and seen. And then I said to you, Jesus let them taste it after they distributed it. And there are times that obedience precedes faith. I think is what I'm trying to get here. And there are times that faith precedes obedience. There are times that Jesus says, do what I tell you. I know you don't understand. I know you're hungry. I know. Do it anyway. And in so doing, he places in you as a gift to you faith in order that you can see him more fully. And other times, he shows you first in order that you excitedly go out and tell everybody else. But in both cases, he's good. So they gather up the 12 baskets from those who had eaten. And when the people, verse 14, saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. The prophet who is come into the world. This is uh, taken directly from, I've got to check my notes. It's taken from Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses says that there will be a prophet like in, the, in the like of Moses who will come after him prophesying about the messiah And here because jesus fed them a meal the people see this sign again remember they're following him in the first place because they'd seen him heal people but he fed them some bread this is the prophet who has come into the world they rightly see him for who he is so what do they do Because this is huge 15 Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, this is the radical nature of Jesus, right? Last week, we talked about a Jesus who made himself so big, so God, displayed himself so mightily to the people that this was not a God who you would think you can take by force. Today, he hand delivers bread and loaves to a group of people such that he seems so approachable that he's the kind of God that you can take by force. Think about, like, how humble Jesus must have presented himself that the people would think to themselves, let's grab him. Let's grab him. We'll make him, take him by force to make him king And I'm going to save this, the careful exposition of this passage for next week because next week, after Jesus walks on the water in a minute, the people are going to follow him to the other side of the lake and he's going to preach a sermon to those who had their bellies filled and he's going to clear up for us what's going on here. And I want to let him do it. But for this week, what I want you to know is that Jesus made himself so low, so relatable, so caring, so compassionate, so touchable, so punchable, So human, and yet so God, that the crowd thought, let's grab him. Does Jesus ever feel seizable to you? I'm not encouraging you to sin here. But does he ever, does his love ever feel so close to you? Does he ever feel so near to you that it feels like you could just kind of grab him? Because apparently he desires that. He put himself in that position. He orchestrated the whole setup. Now he'll correct them where they were wrong here. He'll correct that. But they were starting to see something true. Let's keep going. Again, we'll let him talk about that next week. When evening came, verse 16, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Remember, he had retreated by himself to the other side of the mountain. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I mentioned in the beginning that a preacher needs to make some decisions about where to preach different things, and John very conspicuously sticks this in the middle of the bread story. First, the miracle, then the walking on water, then the sermon about the bread miracle. He wanted it in the middle. So either preach it by itself, preach it now, or preach it next week, right? I'm preaching it now because it was the same day. It was that evening, and the disciples saw Jesus retreat by himself after the miracle and decide to cross without him. And as they're going across the sea to Capernaum, it gets dark. Jesus still had not come to them. The sea became rough. A strong wind was blowing. They rode three or four miles. It's like seven to 12 miles from one end to the other. So they're far off the coast, but about halfway there. And and they see Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat and they are frightened now this is a place where we again see John conspicuously leave something out and in the other gospel accounts you're going to hear them talk about Jesus rebuking the wind and the waves and commanding the sea and everything going still and they really highlight how like Jesus is like lord of nature and John says nothing about any of that he doesn't even mention it why what did he want us to see They were frightened, but he said to them, verse 20, it's me. Don't be afraid. And then they welcomed him into the boat, and the story's over. What did John see differently than the other disciples in this story? For them, for John, the story ended when Jesus arrived. The story ended when Jesus got into the boat. The miracle wasn't that Jesus stopped the circumstances that were scaring them the miracle was that Jesus did whatever he had to do to get in the boat with them and this is kind of the last point of the sermon for this week is that Jesus will do whatever he needs to do to get to you in your hour of need Jesus will do whatever he needs to do to get to you in your hour of need and in that hour of need church the greater thing is that he gets into those circumstances with you. Not that he changes the circumstances. Now, this is something that I would need more Bible to preach on. But this morning, what I want you to see is that for John, the story was done in the way that he recalled it, in the way that he's told it, when Jesus got in the boat. One of my favorite Preachers, John Piper talks about the glory of Jesus like this. He says that if Jesus is a radiating source of glory, like out in the universe, right, like as if he was the sun, and he's the, and the, he's the source of glory, and his glory descends upon us like a beam, and like the heat of the sun hits the earth, and the product of it is photosynthesis, and vegetation sprouts forth, and you, know, and, and you soak in the vitamin D on your skin and all of these things, that it would be the fool who looks down at his skin and says, I love it, and who looks at the plants and says, I love it, and at no point casts his eyes upward to see the source of the glory and the goodness that produces all of these things, right? Well, next week, we're going to see that the people chase down Jesus because they want more bread, and in several of the gospel accounts, you're going to see that the gospels marvel at the waves stopping, but what John sees rightly is the source of it all, getting into the boat with him. And I want you to receive encouragement this morning that Jesus did command the wind and the waves, but John didn't mention it, so I don't want to focus on it this morning. I do want you to receive encouragement that when Jesus shows up, oftentimes our circumstances are radically changed for the better, but oftentimes he just enters into them with us. Oftentimes the circumstances don't get better, and yet Jesus walks step in step with us. And my fear is that in the American church, it is so easy for us to reduce Jesus when he makes himself approachable, when he shows us that he cares, when he shows us that he is interested in our day-to-day, that we would remove from him yet again his intrinsic king nature, his intrinsic God nature and start to just treat him as useful. To start to regard him as an ATM, to start to regard him as a genie where we rub the lamp when we need something and Jesus' primary function is to give me bread. But Jesus doesn't allow for that. What Jesus offers is himself. And the way that I know that the circumstances, oftentimes the way that we want them to go, that Jesus enters into them, but then doesn't give us the exact thing that we asked for, is because what the people wanted when they wanted to seize him to be king, what even the disciples wanted up until the very end, they were still confused about this, was for him to establish an earthly earthly reign, to be the king who will fill their bellies every day, Who will fight off their oppressors, who will give them earthly prosperity. And he says no to all those things. Instead, he lays down his life and lets the oppressors crucify him because he was after a far greater throne. And many of us would settle for a Jesus who takes up a smaller throne, a throne that we built for him. But Jesus won't allow it. Instead, John declares a Jesus here who, not because of what he can do, not even because of the bread thing, not even because of the sea and the waves, that when he said, It's me, don't be afraid. And he gets in the boat. For him, the story's done. And the reason why I ended on this story this week rather than picking it up with that last week is I just felt like it's the right end cap to a Jesus who just fed the masses. He allowed himself to be a Jesus who says to the people, It's me come, be with me, taste, see, be full, have your fill, have your belly filled, have your rest, have your lunch with me. And that's what he shows us today. And that's what I want to invite the church in this morning. I want us this week to not put Jesus so far out of touch that we just feel like we can't even relate to him, or to bring him so low that we feel like he needs to obey us, but to see that he puts himself exactly in the place that he ought to be, And it's the best place for us. He's only ever after our good. Listen, church, we don't make Jesus a king, right? Jesus is the king. I'll say it again. We don't make Jesus a king. He is the king. And when the people started clamoring to make him anything, he withdrew to be by himself. He doesn't need our help. To be who he is. He is who he is. His invitation to us is not to make him anything, not to partner with him in becoming anything, but just to receive him for who he is. And in receiving him for who he is, our needs are met and more. So if your belly is hungry, if you feel like you're chasing him down this morning and that he's going in places that you don't understand and you're getting tired from just following him as he's moving through the wilderness, just know that wherever he lands, it's going to be a place with much grass. Where he's got a perfect spot to teach you, to feed you, to love you, to minister to you. So as we get our eyes on him this morning in Conclusion Church, I want you guys to join me in something, okay? There's just really one charge this morning, okay? There is a real, tangible need in your life today. I don't want you to go back 10 years unless 10 years ago. There was something that you decided to never go back to because it was damaging in your walk with Jesus. If you need to do that, do that. But I want you to think about today the thing that you would call your hungry belly. Or if, like the crowd, you're trying to chase down Jesus because you need healing, because you've got a felt unmet need. An area of your life where you have felt like, my God can't be bothered with this request because he's the God of kingdoms, he's the God of the universe, he's the great I am, he can't be bothered with this. I want you to see a Jesus who looks at the sheep without a shepherd and leads them into green pastures and establishes himself as their great provider. I want you to talk to him today. I want you to seek your provision from him today. And I want you to trust that whatever his answer, that he has seen your need before you asked, that he has seen you before you sought him, that he has creatively creatively pre-planned to meet your need in exactly the way that you need. And then I want you to turn to somebody in here, and I want you to pray over them for the same. I'll lead us in that now, and then we'll take communion together.